climate change is without doubt, you know, the biggest threat that faces humanity and it requires all of us to work together. But it's also because of that, the biggest opportunity that we have as, as humanity, as the human race, to create a better world. Welcome to Hello Climate Calling, the climate change podcast by the Embassy of Finland in London and the British Embassy in Helsinki. We are on a quest to find out climate solutions and shed light on the people and projects working to secure a more sustainable world. My name is Heli Suominen and I'm your host today. In this episode, we will be looking at the challenges of adapting our societies to higher temperatures and to more extreme weathers. I'll be speaking with Helen Adams, a senior lecturer in disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation at King's College in London. You have also recently served as the head of science engagement for COP26 in Glasgow. Helen, it's so great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Helen, uh, your work looks at how environmental change drives migration and also what kind of adaptation is needed and even forced upon us in a rapidly warming globe. Uh, but let's first rewind a little to Glasgow a few weeks back. COP26 is now done and dusted. And one of the results was, for example, the final agreement containing a number of pledges covering adaptation. For example, $960 billion dollars were pledged to help vulnerable countries to adapt to climate change. There were also some other results, but could you sum up what you think were the most significant results and maybe what challenges we still face? Yes, of course. And I think if you read the kind of um, analysis of COP, people can't make up their mind whether it was a success or it wasn't, right? And I think there were many elements that show that this COP was much more progressive than previous COPs, but I think we can all agree it probably wasn't enough, right? That we still have these big steps to make. And so I think one big outcome was that countries that have just submitted revised nationally determined contributions and and now 90% of the world's emissions are covered by a net zero commitment by 2050 or 2060. But part of the, the final agreement, final text, was that countries now have to do one next year as well with the expectation that they'll be even more ambitious because there's an acknowledgement that more needs to be done more quickly. We need to half emissions in the next 10 years. But I think there were so many good outcomes. Um A lot of stuff around Article 6, which is about emissions trading, was finally signed off. So the Paris, what they call the Paris Rule Book, which was all the kind of rules around the Paris Agreement from five years ago, were all signed off. And lots of, I think, a big difference that the presidency made this year were kind of what we call real economy agreements. So rather than working with the whole world to agree something, which is what the UNFCCC does, we worked with countries in specific sectors to deal with specific high emissions. So, for example, there was lots of commitments on stopping deforestation, lots of commitments to phase out coal and coal financing, and um, various commitments on zero emission vehicles. So I think, you know, they're the big emitting sectors. And, you know, because there was this discussion about whether 
coal phase down or phase out. But fundamentally, you've got the actual mention of phasing down fossil fuels in the text for the first time, which when you think about climate change, that's something we should have had probably 30 years ago. So lots of exciting things around. And I think what everyone is saying is that this is the decade of action. And now we need to see real action towards these political commitments. If you had to state one the most significant result, what would you say? Oh, that's a hard one. Is it one. possible? <laughs> I think the one you stated on finance is a big one. I think, you know, countries just about meeting the kind of 100 billion every year for 2020 to 25 is significant because that's a huge part of building trust within the Paris Agreement that, you know, the low-income countries, industrializing countries will do their bit to prevent emissions, but the high-income countries have to really be paying, you know, for adaptation and for mitigation. So I think that's a really significant one. For me, I I think that nature was on the table. This is the first COP where nature, the kind of biodiversity and stopping the destruction of biodiversity, protecting nature has been brought together with the climate agenda. And although it sounds kind of self-evident, that hasn't been done before. I think that's really big. Great. Uh, now let's focus on your present work. Uh, can you just first explain uh, what we actually mean when we say climate adaptations and actually also why we seem to hear that word adaptation in the news much more often than, let's say, two years ago? Mm, good questions. So adaptation is really, it's on a continuum from, say, coping with climate change to making additions or changes to our lives that mean climate change doesn't negatively impact us, to then thinking more what they call transformatively, which is about actually how can we make changes that don't make us vulnerable to climate change anymore. So, so for example, if you take, I mean, let's take a Bangladesh example, because it's often in the news for about climate change, you know, coping with climate change would be, you know, just weathering a storm, right? An adaptation would be, okay, I'm going to raise my house onto stilts or I'm going to have floating gardens or I'm going to change the variety of rice that I grow so that it's flood tolerant or drought tolerant. But a transformative response would be, okay, well, why am I living in a floodplain that gets flooded and why am I poor? You know, why am I living in these precarious conditions? And so we start to think about, you know, how can we work to prevent the poverty that leads people to being exposed? And so, but basically it's trying to stop the negative impacts of climate change from from affecting our well-being. You mentioned uh, Bangladesh, and uh, actually many dramatic scenarios concern the global south. But I guess us in Finland and in the UK, um, are, we, are we safe then? Mm. And that comes to your second question that I didn't answer. Why are we hearing the words adaptation more and more? Is because yeah. uh, climate change very definitely is not a thing of the future. It's, it's a thing of the present. And I think the wildfires that we've seen in in the northern latitudes, so, you know, in the US, uh, you know, Russia, well, even in the Mediterranean, so Greece, have really shown that, and these wildfires, you know, wildfires were a thing that happened, but the intensity, the frequency of these wildfires and the reach of them, it definitely has a climate signal to it. And so, no, it's, I think you're 100% right. You look at the floods in Germany, you know, and and the, the havoc, the devastation that was wreaked and uh, wrought, I suppose is the right term, And um, there was a woman on the news sort of lamenting that this was something that happens in poor countries. You know, it, it was sort of unbelievable that it was something that also happened in Germany. And I think the difference is that northern countries have social safety nets in place. They have a strong institutional structures that can protect people or go in to recover, respond, rebuild. 
And in the low-income countries, you don't have that capacity as much. But, but yeah, I mean, there's no hiding from climate change. It sounds like there is a big question of equity and equality here and a question of responsibility on behalf of the global north. Yeah, and, and you've, that's a matter that I think anybody who works in adaptation gets quite quickly too. I mean, it's embedded in the UNFCCC to go back to, to COP, you know, common and differentiated responsibilities. So um, we know that this is a global problem. Climate change, you can't, there's no borders for climate change. We can't close our, our borders towards it. But, and um, so we have to work together. But at the same time, some countries are definitely more responsible for the emissions and have, you know, there are global North economies, you know, the US, Europe, these kind of countries, we've really um, benefited from the burning of fossil fuels to drive our economies over the, you know, the last 200, 300 years. And so, and this comes out in the kind of contentious debates around loss and damage, which is that, you know, countries in the global South, there are climate impacts that you can't adapt to. You just can't adapt. And the most emblematic one is what you call small island or big ocean states, They probably won't exist in, in the coming decades. And, and how do you start reparations for that? How do you start compensating? You can't fundamentally compensate someone for the loss of their sovereignty. But but how do you start dealing with those equity issues? And But then I suppose I should just add to that. I think that's not to make the Global South victims. And I think there's a lot where, for example, Bangladesh is leading the way in how to adapt on climate change, knowledge and awareness on climate change. And so, you know, I think we also have to avoid writing off these countries and making these countries victims when there's a lot of innovation and a lot of, you know, adaptation moving forward. So there's the question of equity and poverty. There's also more and more the question of uh, security. Uh, we have actually discussed this in previous episodes, like the last episode with Finnish Foreign Minister Pekka Haavisto, uh, that climate change is increasingly being viewed as an emerging security threat. Um, how does the concept of climate security uh, factor into your research? It's a really good question. And I listened to the podcast and it was amazing. And I, I loved how the minister took this really broad view on climate security. So climate security is about food security. It's about energy security. It's about being able to lead the kind of lives that we want to lead worldwide and, and ensuring that everybody leads them. Because if you think about it, I think he maybe touched upon this. There's lots of people who aren't leading a very good life right now, right? So in poorer, lower-income countries, there's a lot of people suffering on an everyday basis with or without climate change. So my work, I think it's it relates to migration. As you mentioned, I'm I work mainly on migration as a response to climate change. And what I actually work on is that people don't tend to move. So there was very strong narratives that persist, actually, that we're going to get hordes of climate migrants. You know, they use these horrible terms, floods, um, and that, you know, half of the global south is going to end up on fortress Europe's doors. And and I think a lot of us are studying those dynamics. And although there is definitely 100% a link between the environment and people on the move, of course, you just have to think about a hurricane or a flood. You don't stay put. I mean, you you move, right? You You get yourself out of harm's way, that those dynamics aren't straightforward and lots of people remain, you know, and the predominantly people stay. But I think the point you're alluding to is that also there's this idea, which I'm always trying to push back on, is that 
climate migrants themselves or migrants, or, or and this is really strong in the UK at the moment, this idea that migrants themselves are a threat or people coming to your country are a threat. or And I think it's, again, it's quite a pervasive narrative that there's a security threat associated with people on the move, which is just not the case, you know. And so a, a lot of the discipline looks at sort of migration as an adaptation. You know, when does it work for people? When does migration increase your well-being versus when does migration undermine your well-being? You know, if you think about it, you can move to the city and, and lead an awful life or you can move to the city and get a better job and your children go to better schools and things. But I think a lot of where we need to be looking is about the idea of the host communities and and how do we feel about newcomers coming into our, our cities and our countries and how do we feel about, you know, the cultural changes that might happen and how do we, you know... I suppose, undo some of the negative narratives, the negative discourses around newcomers and change. And, you know, I mean, there's lots to talk about multiculturalism and integration. I was trying not to say those words, but I couldn't not say them. But I think um, that's where there's lots of interesting research to be done. We've talked a lot about concerns and, um, and worrying scenarios. Would you be able to share a concrete example of something successful, uh, successful climate adaptation in, in action? The difficult thing about adaptation that is if it works well, you don't really know it's working well. A really boring example is is drains on roads, right? Like, you know, we're having intense rainfall that's causing very localized flash flooding. And, you know, you drive along the road and there's all sorts of, you know, water on the road just makes the roads uneven. If you've got good drainage systems that are adapted to higher, you know, volumes of rainfall, you're not going to notice it, you know. I think at a bigger level, um, a higher level a successful adaptation is where you are able to engage with, you know, I was talking about transformational adaptation in the beginning of the session. And I think successful adaptation is where you engage and empower new groups. So, for example, there's lots of work at the moment on locally driven adaptation where after a disaster, you know, like a climate uh, you know, an extreme weather event and, and people are sort of left without their homes and their jobs and their land's been destroyed. Instead of, you know, humanitarian organizations going in and, and, and they can't get there anyway for days, what you mm. do is you give money directly to local people to do what they need to do. So, and, and what you've seen quite successfully is groups of women club together, go, right, we need to sort this out. We need a bit of cash the humanitarian organizations give them that grant and they got on with it and do it themselves. So I think this drive towards locally driven adaptation informed by the people who are there as the first responders who are there experiencing the event, give them, empower them to do the work and to do what they need to do. I think that's the best approach. And then through that, you empower people in general, right? Because this, for example, this group of women who perhaps didn't have so much, you know, decision-making power in the, in the area, suddenly feel, you know, a lot more powerful. They've done this thing and, and it's um, brought them towards the centre of the community a lot more. Helen, my final question for you concerns you and your feelings as you have had a front row seat to global efforts uh, to adapt to our changing climate. How hopeful do you feel for the future yourself? It's, uh, again, a question that, you know, the idea of hope comes up a lot and... Um, It's funny, since we talked, you know, sort of to prepare for this meeting, I, I read a, a tweet about the time of peak comfort is over. I wish I could accredit the person properly. And that, that life is going to get less comfortable, right? And partly because we've lived in a stable climate for 10,000 years. Don't quote me on that number, but, you know, many tens of thousands of years, the climate's been stable. It's not anymore, right? We're not going to have a stable climate for a long time, if ever again. 
And it's sometimes hard to to see how we can go on prospering. Mm. But what I always go back to is that actually a lot of the world, life's pretty rubbish as it stands. You know, even before climate change, the world was pretty rubbish for a lot of people. And, you know, climate change offers us, I think, the best opportunity for a long time or, or that we've ever had as humanity to really make the world a, a much fairer place, a much more livable place and to start to connect with nature and connect with community and the things that drive well-being in in the global north where we're also individualized and isolated and it's a really great opportunity to to put into place all the kind of changes that we need to make to ensure that people aren't living in poverty and that to ensure people have you know access to clean energy and access to to good transport and health and so i think it's i think if you take a global perspective it's a lot easier to see that actually there's still a lot we can do to actually make the world a much more livable place, you know, with or without climate change. This is something very optimistic. Thank you, Helen. This was Hello Climate Calling. Thank you, Helen Adams, for sharing your insights. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. You can find our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, please share our podcast with your friends and colleagues.